Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged to be your host and interviewer each week now for over five years and nearly 300 episodes. We have brought to you interviews, conversations, insights, quite frankly, sometimes very intimate, revealing conversations with some of the most renowned thought leaders in the world, best-selling authors, business titans, CEOs, athletes, celebrities, researchers, scientists, and sometimes people who always aren't a household name that have either done some research or survived, in many cases, a tragedy of unspeakable horror that have both lived, recovered, and then written or dedicated their lives to talking about it. We take our podcast quite seriously, not ourselves, but our podcast quite seriously to bring you, hopefully each week, life-changing conversations around leadership issues. Franklin Covey, of course, we believe to be the most trusted leadership firm in the world. I have been privileged to be part of this organization for 27 years. Dr. Covey, our co-founder, of course, wrote the seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And his legacy, of course, has been perpetuated by our influence and imprint around the world, continued by his son, the namesake Stephen M. R. Covey, who wrote about 10 years ago a seminal book on the topic of trust. The book was called The Speed of Trust. And so Franklin Covey has enormous passion about how to build trust, how to regain trust, that trust is an outcome of your decisions and reputation, which is why today we are featuring someone who is an expert on a similar topic. We love to shine our spotlight on people that have similar points of view, or in many cases, differing points to do. And today, our guest is Dr. Henry Cloud. He is the renowned leadership expert, clinical psychologist. His books collectively have sold over 20 million copies. And today, he's talking about his new book called Trust. Dr. Cloud, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, it's good to be with you, as always. You guys do a great job. Dr. Cloud, I can't help but look at your background. My sense is it's a favorite spot. It looks like it's the uh, Amalfi Coast in Italy. Of all, this, of all of the icons you could have had behind you, why have you picked that? You know, it just gets me uh, in a pretty good frame of mind. <laughs> I can think of the food. I can think of the beauty. I can think of the water. I can think of fun times we've had there. I just like it. I can relate. Uh, our family was privileged to visit the Amalfi Coast last summer, and it was a it was a, a memorable trip for my wife and our three young sons. They were just at that age, 8, 10, and 12. They could begin to appreciate life beyond gelato in Italy, and we had an amazing experience there. So uh, delighted you joined us today. Such an author. You are a seminal voice in the leadership space. You've written this new book about trust, where we'll focus our time today. It's a pas passionate topic for Franklin Covey, dedicated, you know, 40 years of our expertise and writing to the topic of how to become a high-trust leader. One of the books you are most well-known for is a book you recently wrote a couple years ago called Boundaries. I'd love to just maybe spend one or two minutes on why was that such a passionate topic for you? Why did you write about boundaries? And maybe even what do you want us to remember about how to set, how to respect and maintain good boundaries as leaders, as friends, as spouses, as, as um, humans? You know, it came about, actually, I, I'm not really an author. I, I, I always say I, I don't write books. The work writes the books, right? And I'm a practitioner. I spend over 100 days a year in the war rooms with CEOs and teams and their companies and cultures. And, you know, you see, you see issues that keep talking to you, right? And I find myself in the same kind of conversation over and over. 
And the topic of boundaries is it's basically just essential to existence. You know, life is, is as we'll talk about with trust today, life is about our connections. All the research in the world tells us about that. But when we're connecting, whether you're in a deal or you got a team that's connected or people in a personal relationship, you know, you're connected, but you're still two entities. And you each have to have your own definition of your property line. Like this is me and this is not me. And so many problems in relationships come from either stepping over that line where we're, you know, controlling somebody else or somebody's out of control and, and the collateral damage of that's falling into somebody else's head or space. And boundaries are about defining those limits and, and setting limits without breaking a connection is a very difficult human skill. It actually can lead to some of the greatest performance. You know, you got a team, that's what different roles are about. Sometimes everybody starts stepping in each other's corner. And even personally, when somebody does something that's hurtful to us, to be able to set a limit with that, it's a hard thing for people to do. Uh, Dr. Cloud, the book that you've just released focuses on the idea of trust. In fact, the topic of the book is um, all around, you know, sort of individual organizational trust. Your tagline is knowing when to give it, when to withhold it, how to earn it, and how to fix it when it's broken. You've organized your book into several sections. I want to just read those out because I think it's instructive for some of the questions I'm going to ask you. Uh, section one is called Trust Makes Life Work. Section two, you call the five essentials of trust. Section three, growing in trust. Section four, the model for repairing trust. And then five, moving forward. I've read your book. Your book is an extraordinary uh, treatise on how we view trust and how it becomes a competitive advantage for leaders. What I want to do, however, you've written the book in a way that has great stories, great relatable examples of leaders at all levels, but you also have put in some kind of pithy insights throughout. And today I'm going to pitch them to you. There's about six uh -huh. or seven of them. And I want you to kind of tell a story or share the principle around them. I've, you've got hundreds of them. I picked out about five or six of them because I think being a um, practitioner, hopefully, on how to both build, destroy, and repair trust in my own life, I'm going to pitch some of these. The first one is you say, leading someone to trust you does not begin with convincing them that you are right. Wow, that right. hit home. Um, riff on that. Well, you know, isn't that what happens most times? Like you're in a conversation, somebody's trying to sell you something or somebody's trying to get you to take the next step in a deal or go their direction, like if you're on a team. And they start persuading. You know, that's kind of natural. We want to convince somebody. But the way the, the neurology of this works and the way the biology and the brain chemistry and the relational dynamics and all of that, the way that works is if, if somebody's being persuaded, they're in a different stance than if we miss the first step. The first step is always, always, always that somebody feels like you understand them and what hurts them, what they like, what they need, what they don't need. And when we feel like somebody's getting us, I mean, we're wired with mirror neurons from infancy. 
what does a baby do when they feel that that mirroring that mom or caretaker unders? Oh, you're upset. You know, you, it's all about tone. It's about emotional presence. It's about an investment in understanding where the other one is coming from first. That's when the brain opens up to being willing to be persuaded. You know, Scott, I was talking about this in a leadership event one day, and a guy walks up to me from the audience and he says, um, you know, I'm the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. You know, I'm the guy that goes in when somebody's got a bomb strapped to him and with 20 hostages. And he says, we don't go, everything you just said, he said, is our entire training program. He said, we don't walk in a bank and say, and start persuading somebody, this is a bad idea. You know, dude, don't do this. He said, first, we get their name and we ask a question and say, so, so how did we get here today? And you start to have that person feel like you're understanding where they're coming from. That opens the door to persuasion, not vice versa. Dr. Cloud, I mentioned that when we opened this podcast that one of our seminal thought leaders is Stephen M. R. Covey. He co-authored several books, most recently Trust and Inspire, and prior to that, the book The Speed of Trust. This course has been taught to millions of people and organizations. It's really the backbone of a lot of companies' cultures. And one of Stephen's premises is that you don't do trust. You get trust. You earn trust. Trust is an outgrowth of how you behave. It's the patterns right. of your life. Stephen Covey and his son Stephen M.R. Covey would say, you can't talk yourself out of a problem that you've behaved yourself into. And in your book, you share something similar. You say, what someone has done before is usually the best indicator of what will happen next time. Not an epiphany, but, you know, as all things in life, common knowledge isn't common practice. I want you to take a few moments and remind us that how important our our, our behavior is to building a, a reputation of being trusted, that you can't, you can't declare yourself trustworthy. Someone else, has to, someone, else to have, someone else must deem you trustworthy based on their experience with you over time. Well, Scott, you know, the whole system, your entire system is wired to answer one question 24-7 to every millisecond before it answers any other question. And that question is, am I safe? You know, we've been breathing the air here for the last minute. You haven't been thinking about it because down your spinal column and through your cells and all your, your wiring, your, your system has determined the air is safe to breathe. So you move forward, right? It's got a, it's got a track record of that, right? And you move forward. But as soon as you smell a fume, that whole system backs up. Well, it's exactly like that in trust, in business and in personal lives. Our mind makes mental maps. That's how you get to the refrigerator because you've been there before. You know how to walk. You don't have to worry about a couch tripping you up. You got a map. Every interaction we have with a person, that person's mind is building a mental map of what's it like to be on the other side of me. So the thing about this, I mean, everybody's had this experience. You, you got a problem and you go in and talk to the boss about it. And he goes, are you kidding me? After all, we've, you did what we've got, you know, and you get this angry reaction or whatever. Well, you walk out of there and the next time you have a problem, you go, I'm not taking it to him or her, you know, because you built a map. And so we, we begin to predict 
that's the way we organize life. What happened the last time I interacted with this person? Now, we can all overcome mistakes and problems, but the big problem with maps is the patterns. You know, if I've gone in, maybe we have one interaction like that and I run into it and says, you know, I'm sorry I went off on you. Well, that's a, that's breaking that pattern and that's giving us a new track record. But when somebody's got, you know, you get two or three or four times, you go to a restaurant and have bad food, <laughs> it doesn't take many times before you built a map. And so those maps are important. Every interaction counts. Dr. Cloud, you talk about uh, some of the components that, you know, get in the way of trust when building relationships. Defensiveness, anger, narcissism, drama and emotional instability, control, neediness and dependency, irresponsibility, codependency or lack of boundaries. And you end that list with gossip or divisive behavior. That last one, I feel like no one ever admits to that, right? We, we, we say, well, you know, so-and-so can't be trusted, don't tell him that, or whatever it is. You know, no one really ever admits to being a narcissist, it's everyone else. No one ever admits to being a control freak, it's somebody else. And I don't think people, including me, take enough responsibility for how we're part of the problem when it comes to gossip inside organizations. It's the biggest cancer every organization deals with. I want you to expand on how important it is for leaders if they want to be trusted, if they want to build a high trust culture to make sure that they are a transition figure, that they actually are the model of not gossiping so that they become the standard bearer of that. Take that wherever you'd like to go. Well, it's a big deal. You know, everybody's heard the phrase, the meeting after the meeting. Well, there you go. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, we spent all this time on this and then somebody's at the coffee machine and now they're saying what they really think to only a part of the team or one person. So now by definition, you're divided. And those meetings after the meetings are rarely, you know, how great that person was or how great, you know, it's, it's always something. It's can, a little, can you deep. believe, can you believe this? Can you believe that? Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so now we've, now we've got division and, and, you know, you talk about the modeling that leaders can do. One of the best phrases I think that we can have is this one. When somebody's talking to it like that, say, well, have you said this to her? Yeah. Have you talked to him about that? Well, no. And then it's either, well, why don't you go do that first and see if you can get resolution. If you can't, both of you come back to me. Or let's pick up the phone and call him right now. And see, what you're doing is, you're, and obviously there's some circumstances where that's not feasible or even wise, but, but by and large, what you're always trying to do is align relationships and fight division. Because when you get division, that's a problem. And the thing about gossip is you're painting a picture, you know, this happens in families, you know, person, you know, you got adult sibling, it's got a problem with another adult sibling and they call the third one to talk about it. <laughs> well, now you've altered the relationship between those other two people. And it just goes haywire most of the time. Dr. Cloud, uh, a big section of your book is called The Five Essentials of Trust. You call them understanding, motive, 
ability, character, and track record. I want to expand for a moment on track record. You write a great paragraph about this. I'm going to pitch it to you and ask you to take it where you'd like. Each of those five essentials of trust can be vetted by checking into a person's track record over time. People can fake anything temporarily in order to get what they want, but it's difficult to sustain a charade for a longer time, especially when they're not yet getting everything they want. The quote here that you end with is, we need to trust people in their lanes of strength. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, this happens a lot. Just one example of when you're hiring someone. I mean, so many times we will take a referral from somebody. We'll say, you know, do you know this person? And they go, oh, yeah, they're great and all of this. And, and so what we'll do is we won't really vet the track record in the context that we're going to need them in. You know, somebody could have been a classic example. I, I just, just had a friend that this happened to. There was a guy that had been very successful in running a big, big, big operation of a public company. And he figured after all that success, he had made him a bunch of money. He knew how to do it all. You know, he said, I'm going to go do this on my own. And so he raised a bunch of money for it. Well, it was true that he was a great operator in the existing structure, right? In that lane, if you will. What he didn't have the competency to do was do that where nothing existed. And a bunch of people lost a bunch of money. And so sometimes we can think we're vetting somebody, and this is very important. I mean, we need to read the resumes, we need to call all the references and this and the other, but we've got to contextualize trust. You know, if you had a great surgery, you know, from somebody, oh yeah, you know, he or she's a great surgeon. And I'm needing, I wrote about it in the book, I'm needing a knee replacement and somebody tells you they're a great surgeon. Well, did I find out they're an OB-GYN? <laughs> they're not a knee surgeon? And we have to look at context. The other thing about this is that many times a person has been very trustworthy in a certain kind of relationship. You know, they manage up well or they manage down well, but they can't deal with authority or a board over them. And so we've really got to look at a track record in one lane only doesn't give us a full picture we need. Uh, su superb advice. Um... I want to ask you about the characteristics of earning or re-earning trust. In a moment, I'm going to pivot to trust in the personal aspect of life. Will you just kind of maybe give us a, a quick laundry list of, if you've got a leader that needs to earn trust or re-earn trust because it's broken, those are different topics I recognize, what are some practical things leaders can do like this afternoon, call their team together, there's been a breach of trust and discuss it, what are some practical lessons you've learned as a clinical psychologist, as a leadership consultant to say, well, here's things that everybody should be doing all the time, but if you've got a situation where you've broken trust, consider that, recognizing that you know, trust can be broken in many different ways. Well, it's interesting because you know, there are two different topics, right? When you're Clearly. building trust right. and then when you're repairing it. But what the book is basically about is that there's an algorithm. There's really, an, when I went through all the research and everything about how
this works. You do a factor analysis of it, it loads on about five big factors. And so, you know, it, it's understanding, as I mentioned earlier. It's also motive. Like, have you ever been on a team where, where the team's got something they're trying to do, but one person's got their one agenda, right? And they, they got a motive to always steer this thing in one direction. And, and you can't trust them to do what the whole team wants because they got, they got their agenda or one department does. The third one is the ability. Are they able to pull this off? Do they have the skills and competencies needed? And the fourth one's their personal makeup. You know, if you got somebody that needs a lot of approval and attaboys and all that, and you're going to trust them to go run a turnaround project, if there's not going to be any good news for a year, hmm. their personal makeup doesn't fit that that particular context. And then, you know, fifth one, as we said, the track record. So if you're if you're sitting down with a team and, you know, let's say something kind of broke down. I'll give you a good example. I, I was working with a, a global um, medical device company and they missed a product launch and it wasn't ready. Well, we did the post-mortem on that. I was called in to kind of try to help them figure this out. And, and we start going through the algorithm and here's where it broke down. I mean, go back to understanding. The sales team was out there selling the product and when a, when a customer would say, well, can it do this? Can it do this? Oh, yeah, 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 we can build that into it. No, you know, and they needed features, right? Well, the sales team had never taken the time to understand what did that mean for R&D? I mean, those are the guys who got to build those features. And there's a date coming and there's a, there's a roadmap to this. And the trust had broken down because they never had around the table. Well, if we're promising this, how does that affect you? What does that do to you? So you sit down with a team and you just go through these five. I've done this a gazillion times. You sit down with the team where they're really understanding what the other chair needs from them in order to make this work. And sometimes trust is broken down because we've experienced it. You know, we judge, we judge ourselves by our intentions. Like, well, I wasn't meaning to screw you up, but others judge us by our behaviors and the results. And so somebody can feel a breach of trust or a breakdown of trust when it wasn't our intention. That's why, that's why I think this model gives, you know, sort of like a, a dashboard on an airplane. You can kind of see, you know, how are we doing? And you can sit down and you talk through these things. You start to talk through these things with the team or have the team. Here's another application. You have a team and ask yourself, how are we doing in these five key areas with our customer? And, that's when, you know, or with our brand, because this is the way that, that you know, trust fuels investment. And we got to, we, for somebody to have both feet in, we don't want somebody on a team with one foot in or a customer with just one foot in. We want full investment and engagement. And so the best thing is to sit down and talk through them, find out how nefarious it's been. You know, Scott, there are, you know, there are, there are misdemeanors and felonies in trust. And you get to some of the more, you know, the felonies where you're getting to real deception and lying and cheating or, you know, duplicity, that kind of thing. That's a bigger hit pause yeah, yeah. than 90% of these breakdowns can be resolved if people have the things to talk through. 
Dr. Cloud, take a drink. I'm going to read a four-paragraph passage out of your book, something I've never done before, but I find it riveting. So let me just bear with me, everybody. Take, um, take a break, not from the podcast, but I want you just to listen for about four, pot, four paragraphs here. I'm going to have Dr. Cloud opine on what he wrote. Perfectionist or narcissistic parenting or teaching styles can absolutely ruin someone's ability to trust. Here comes four paragraphs. Get comfortable. I recently worked with an executive on which one member totally destroyed trust amongst the team's seven members. Every time she submitted an idea and the other team members didn't totally love it, she accused the team of not valuing her, gaslighting her, creating a toxic work environment, and other negative behaviors. The truth was that they did value her, but as to everything else, they did not wholeheartedly embrace or agree with her every idea. But if her ideas were criticized in any way, she accused the team or the boss of being untrustworthy. Had she only been able to trust that they wanted her to be a part of the team and to contribute, things would have gone well. But she could not view them as trustworthy if they challenged or disagreed with her ideas or were not thoroughly enamored of them. Her trust muscle demanded perfectly adoring responses to her at all times. Otherwise, she could not trust the team. By the way, her gender is immaterial here. You go on to say you don't have much context for her past, but you also say, but I can only imagine that it was a series, an issue where she was either overly adored all the time in life and never had a chance to learn that she could be imperfect and still be valued. Or perhaps she was overly critical and without acceptance because she never learned that she could both be imperfect and criticized and still be valued. Either way, her trust was still what you call sunburned. You talked about how narcissism is an issue here. Narcissistic people have a great investment in being seen as ideal or perfect. They must be adored and idealized by others in order to feel secure and trusted. They cannot integrate good and bad. They require others to see them as all good. Yeah. Written from a clinical psychologist. Thank you for the insight. Expand on that. Because we all have either been that person, work with that person, are married to that person, or want to stop being that person ourselves. How many times have you been in some situation where something doesn't look exactly right or, you know, I thought you said you were going to be in Cincinnati this week, but you were in, you know, what, or I got this expense report and, you know, this, and, and you have a question about something. And the immediate response is, so are you questioning my integrity or what? You don't trust me? And that defensive, like, posture of that somebody's above being questioned or clarified or, you know, that something, I might have done something imperfect. Well, that's one time you hear this. Another time you hear it is like in the example that you read, that a, a highly narcissistic person is coming from either one or two places. They've got so much shame and they feel so bad if they're seen as imperfect, that they, you know, they go into a black hole, so they have to get very defensive about it. Or they themselves believe that they truly are without fault and they go on the attack 
you know, if somebody can't see that. Life can only work. We can only learn. We can only innovate. We can only grow. We can only get closer with people that have an, an integration in, in literally the structure of their personalities. They have an integration of both good and bad in themselves and others. In other words, a great team, let's say the CEO and the people on the team, both of them see the world in terms of an integrated world where somebody can have a good idea and a bad idea, where somebody can do something well and something imperfectly. So now you're on a team and even the CEO says, well, I think we ought to do this. And the other one goes, well, I don't think that's going to work because, you know, what you're missing here, that's a great moment. I mean, that's why a CEO pays people to be in the room, right? So you can tell me where I'm wrong and vice versa. But if somebody can't handle that, then you're going to surround yourself with just yes people or adoring people or you can't be questioned. You know, you're, you're the captain of the Titanic. Somebody tells you, you know, this is a bad idea. You're not listening. And worse than that, it turns into a battle. So one of the most important things, let me give you a simple example of this, Scott. When, when our girls were growing up, every night at dinner, from the time they were probably four or five years old, every night we would go around the table and say, okay, what's everybody everybody's roses and thorns today? Give me one rose and one thorn. In other words, what was the great thing that happened today? What was the crummiest thing that happened? Now, that's a good little exercise to get a family talking. But as a psychologist, I didn't really care as much about what happened that day that was good or bad. I was trying to build a view in them of life and other people that it's imperfect and it's great. And if we can't handle the vicissitudes of those going together, we'll never solve problems and we'll never have a sustainable relationship or go very deep. So it is a big deal to, you know, now, now we're getting into the characterological makeup of people, which, you know, look at the Harvard research for years on EQ. You know, you go to a C-suite and everybody looks the same across the board, IQ, education levels, background, industry, acumen, all of that. But 90% of what determines the performance past all those givens is their personal makeup. They lump it into EQ and some other factors, but it's really how this person's glued together. And if somebody splits the world into good and bad, then they're not living in this world because this world's got both. Dr. Cloud, because I have a shred of self-awareness, I can declare I'm a bit of a narcissist. I think I'm a good person. I think I have high character. I think I can generally be trusted and I'm a narcissist. I adore I want to be adored, I want to be praised, I want to always think like my work is the best, I crave the CEO's approval, still at 55 years old, I'm a good person, and I'm a narcissist. Said by no one ever except for on this program. So now that I've declared I'm a narcissist, and I think I'm a good person with a conscience and a desire to not be a narcissist, without being my therapist for hours and hours and years and years, what can I do to be less so without knowing why I'm a narcissist? What can I do to be less of a narcissist so that I can trust people and earn their trust without 100 hours of therapy in your office? 
Well, it's going to take more than 100. I'm sorry, that's all of our time for it. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Scott, you, you just disqualified yourself as a real narcissist. Because, because narcissism, you know, in the, in the crummy form of it, that's a flaw. And narcissists don't want to be seen as having any flaws. So first of all, you can't check the whole box, but you've hit on something. You know, we all have desires to be seen as good. You know, we all have desires to be appreciated, to be valued and all of that. The way that, that our brains work, and this is really important in, for leaders, just to metabolize one piece of negative input, it takes five to seven positives just for the chemistry to work, to be able to, to deal with that that piece of negative. So this is this is a human trait. I mean, how many people have ever seen, you know, everybody's seen a toddler learning to play with a toy and they they do it and they look up and they and everybody claps, way to go. Well, we need that. You know, that fuels us to do good things. But at the same time, when we fall down, you know, the parent or whoever is with them has to look at them and go, yeah, you fell down. That's no big deal. And what we do is we neutralize the mistakes and we neutralize the imperfections. So if I'm giving you advice here without 100 hours, you need experiences that neutralize imperfection because that gets internalized as new self-regulatory equipment. Therefore, if I'm with the team and I'm building a culture and a team, and having everybody go around and say, okay, what do you think you did well on this? And what do we think you did well on this? And what could we have done better? That experience of everybody valuing you while you're being imperfect is reorganizing the internal structure of your brain. And you're going to have less fight or flight, fear, shame, defensive reactions to, the own, to your own awareness of it. And so it's relational experiences that form our internal structure, and it's going to be relational experiences that heal our internal structure or make it have wider capacities. So the best advice I could give is take the step of saying, here's what I think I did well, here's what I think I didn't do so well, I'd like to hear from y'all, you know, what could I do better? And begin to include that in your experience. The other thing is to have a little bit of a mindfulness of getting ready for negative. In other words, you know, I might hear something that's negative for here. Be careful. Don't react. Kind of watch, watch, the, watch the blood pressure go up, but ignore it. And the more we get mindful of our reactions, instead of siding with our reactions, it creates more space and more, more both, uh, you know, brain space, RAM, different chemicals flowing through there, et cetera. Well, I am delighted to announce that I'm on a path to recovery because hosting a podcast gives me ample opportunity to read the thousands of emails and YouTube comments and Twitter feed and about my, um, my, my poor interviewing skills weekly. So I have plenty of opportunities for that ego enema. Okay, our time is up. I want to ask you one final question. This is profound. Can I say one thing? Yes, sir. There, there's nothing that will get us over thinking that we're perfect than actually doing something. 
once we start to do something, the world and the pavement is going to tell us we're not perfect. We just have to listen and keep going. <laughs> well, you heard it from Dr. Cloud. Scott Miller, in fact, is not a narcissist. Great. Uh, I want to read this final quote, doctor, and have you um, opine on it. Let's move from the professional application of trust into our personal lives. You wrote, I have seen more marriages ruined not by mistakes or betrayals, but by continuous lying about something they were not revealing. Take us home. Well, it's dying by a thousand paper cups, right? I mean, how many times, like, <clears throat> you know, in a financial impropriety, he or she spent a bunch of money and, and didn't tell the other one, or it could be a, you know, a big bad one like an affair. And when it's found out, or even, a, you know, uh, on the road to an affair, when it's found out, they deal with that, and there's a big betrayal, and somebody's dealing with that, and then they start down the path of recovery, then a week later, you find out more that wasn't revealed. And then three weeks later, you find out more, and somebody never knows what, you know, the ground they're standing on. And so when there is a screw up, the best thing you can do is come clean about the totality of all of it. Because from that moment forward, you're truly working on repair. You're not working on two agendas, trying to repair while you're still deceiving. Because that never, ever, ever works. I, I remember a woman saying to me one time, I could deal with this if I knew the truth, but I keep finding out more and more. And so it's like getting hit by a baseball bat over and over and over again. So that's, that's kind of what that's about. You know, it's like, if you go to the doctor or, you know, you don't want a dentist, you got an abscess tooth. You don't want them drilling down and only finding half of the infection because we can't fix that you're going to find another half next week. So really important to, if we're going to repair something, let's make sure we know all of it so we can truly repair it. Sir, for not being an author, you've done a pretty good job. 45 books, New York Times bestselling author, uh, 20 million copies across all your titles. Your current release is called Trust, Knowing When to Give It, When to Withhold It, How to Earn It, and How to Fix It When It Gets Broken. Dr. Cloud, you're a huge gift to... Uh, our generation, your work in organizations complements Franklin Covey so nicely. Such an honor that you would choose to come on to our podcast today, sir. Best of success to you. Hope to have you back sometime for your next release, given you aren't an author. Really appreciate it, Scott. I really admire what y'all do. I talk about, I refer people to, you know, one that I refer people to all the time is the four Ds. What a great work that was. The four disciplines of execution. Thank you, sir. We'd, yeah. we'd love to collaborate with you. I appreciate your time. Have a great um, week ahead. Okay, bye-bye. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.